0: Let me tell you a story. When I was a freshman in college uh, up in Boston, I remember it was hard to find an evangelical church in Boston, a church that taught the Bible. Um, I did find one that uh, will remain uh, nameless for the time being, um, though the pastor that was there at the time isn't there anymore. Um, I like this church. The people were nice. I helped lead worship sometimes. And, um, but I, the, the, the pastor went through a series on the book of Hebrews, And I'll never forget what he said about Hebrews chapter 6. He said, now I, I, let me just tell you this. I'd grown up in the Episcopal church. I didn't really know much about what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus really until I got involved in young life in high school, right? But I was still, I didn't really know very much about Christianity when I went off to college, okay? Went to Berkeley College of Music, and I stumbled into this church, and I remember one thing I did think that I knew was that if you were a Christian, that you couldn't, like, lose that. That if you'd made that decision, you'd become a Christian that, you know, one saved, always saved, I think somewhere I'd heard. And I remember going to this church and hearing this sermon on Hebrews chapter 6, and the pastor said, you know, I think based on my study of this passage this week, it's at least hypothetically possible for a Christian to lose their salvation. And I remember, I didn't know much about the Bible. But I was like, oh, I've never heard that before. But he studied it, so I guess that's what's true. And I remember that sent me into a spiritual lethargy, a spiritual funk, if you will, probably for the next three years. Now, this is me, not you. All I needed was that little bit to become like the new expert on whether Christians could lose their salvation. Just because I'd heard one pastor Say he thought it was hypothetically possible. I remember years later, me and some friends started a Christian fellowship at our school, Berkeley College of Music. Still going, the Christian fellowship at Berkeley. And um, we had a local pastor from a different church by this point come and help lead the Bible study. And I remember one time he said something, and I kind of wanted to show how smart I was. So I said, well, I believe it's at least hypothetically possible to lose your salvation, right, based on a sermon I'd heard three years ago. And um, he said, really, Kevin, what about this verse? What about this verse? What about this verse? What about this verse? And it was a bit bruising to my pride, but it was balm for my soul to know that we can have assurance that if God has set his love upon us, we won't trip up and just fall out of that somehow. That doesn't mean that apostasy isn't a real thing, and we're going to talk about what that actually means tonight. You have to, if you want to make sense of Hebrews 6. When you come to Hebrews 6, there are lots of different strategies. Everybody recognizes it's a difficult passage. Those that believe in eternal security say, well, this is one of the hardest passages to make sense of, and try different ways to try to explain it away not just because they don't like it, but because it doesn't seem to fit with what the Bible says so clearly in other places. And then those that are not sure about eternal security, well, they look at this passage and say, here, here it is. You just need to read what it says. Now, we're going to dig into this. It's not inappropriate to want to make Scripture make sense with itself. We believe in RUF, that God is the author of Scripture, and he used human beings to bring the Scripture into being, but it's God's Word. And we try to make it make sense together, because it does make sense together. We don't want to cop out and just use our theology to explain away difficult passages. One of the good things about going through books of the Bible like we do in RUF is sometimes you come upon passages that you'd rather avoid right? And maybe you found that in reading the Bible. Uh, Oh, I I don't know what to do with this. I'm just going to move on. There's a guy named R.C. Sproul. He's passed away last year. But he used to say that if you really want to grow as a Christian, the best thing you need to do is read the Bible and all the passages you don't like, you need to underline those and meditate on those. Because either you need to change or God needs to change. So with that attitude... Hebrews chapter 6. Um, the writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and to go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are all small things, basic things, Right? And this we will do if God permits. And now we get into it. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and in its end it is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, himself saying, Surely, whenever God says surely, that's him swearing an oath, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, namely God's word and God's character, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot of stuff in there. And I suspect that you might have questions even after I go through some of this. Um, So I'll hang around afterwards, and we can have some questions if you want. Um, But let me me dig into this. Does this passage, let's get right into it. Does this passage teach that true Christians can lose their salvation? And if you believe that, yes, it does, then you have to fit this passage with other passages that clearly teach otherwise. Passages like Romans chapter 8. Verses 35 through 39, listen to this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's pretty strong. And now my little snarky self in college, I remember when somebody brought that passage up saying, well, you can separate yourself, to which my friend said, well, are you part of creation? Because Paul says, nothing in all creation. It's pretty strong. It's pretty hard to argue that Paul was stuttering when he wrote those words. Or if you don't like those words, how about these words of Jesus from John chapter 10, verse 28? I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. It seems that Jesus and Paul, and many other passages that I could bring up, are very strong on this point. So, those who want to teach that Christians can lose their salvation have to deal with a whole lot of passages. Now, there are other passages like this. As a matter of fact, we're going to come up again on a warning passage in Hebrews when we get to chapter 10. Okay? But right now, Hebrews 6, I think, is one of the most difficult ones for those who believe in eternal security to understand. There's a couple different ways that people try to make sense of this passage. I'll, I'll tell you some of them briefly. One is to say that the words themselves should be taken in a weaker sense. In other words, tasted but not swallowed, enlightened but not really fully converted. And so they look towards like word definitions to try and say, well, he could have used a stronger word, so maybe he's not actually talking about Christians. Maybe he's talking about people who got really, really, really close, but then turned away. And it's impossible to get them back really, really close for them to take that extra step and get all the way over the hump. Maybe that's what it uh, means. Other, Other people say, you know, impossible. Maybe not really impossible. By impossible, the writer means impossible for us, but not for God. Because after all, with God, all things are possible. So there's different ways that people try to weaken the language, but when you hear these arguments, they sound like they're just trying to explain away this language. It's not very satisfying. Another approach is to say, well, there's a participle here. I won't get into all this Greek grammar stuff, but it is possible to translate it this way, that while falling away, it's impossible to return. But that's kind of like a nonsense statement. Like, why would you even write that? Yeah, as long as you're falling, you're falling, in other words. And if you quit falling, then you can come back. But as long as you're falling, you can't be coming back that doesn't really work. It's grammatically possible, but it's hard to understand what's the point of even saying that. And, and then there's the approach that my friend, the pastor friend, said where it's a hypothetical warning, but it's not actually true of the Hebrews. So why give a hypothetical warning? What kind of warning is that? So what do you, what do you, how do we make sense of this? Here's, you know, I've wrestled with this passage. It's been an important passage for me for a long time, And I'm going to tell you my take on this. I do think there's a better way. I do think there's a way to make sense of this passage in light of passages like John 10 and Romans 8.28. But to get there, you have to understand something that's not so well understood these days, and that's the doctrine of apostasy. Now, apostasy is not something that you hear sermons about very often, I wouldn't think. Um, But it is true that the Bible speaks in a number of places about temporary faith. Uh, Maybe the best way to understand it or to think about it is to think about Judas. Judas was part of the 12 apostles, right? At one point, all of them get sent out two by two, and they do things like miracles, healing, casting out demons. They all come back amazed that even the demons were subject to them. And they report back to Jesus. And you remember Jesus says, well, you shouldn't rejoice in that. You should rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. So by all accounts, by all appearances, Judas is just like the other 12. Then you fast forward to the Last Supper. And on the night of the Last Supper, the night that Jesus was betrayed, earlier that evening, Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his 12 disciples. And as part of that, Jesus takes a basin and a towel, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. You remember what happens? Peter says, no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. That's a menial task that a servant would do. Matter of fact, some of the rabbis don't believe you should even ask a servant to do that. It's such a lowly thing. And here you are wanting to wash our feet. You will never wash my feet, Peter says. And do you remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you can't be part of me. I've already washed you, he says, though not all of you. And John adds the little parenthetical comment, by this he meant Judas. In other words, Jesus says, even though by all appearances, Judas is the same as the rest of you guys. When Jesus says at the Last Supper, one of you is going to betray me, they don't all look at Judas and say, you know what? He wasn't able to cast out demons like the rest of you guys. No, by all appearance, appearances, he was just like the rest of them. And yet, Jesus says at the foot washing on that same night, not all of you have been washed. Now, what's amazing is, as the story unfolds, Judas at least gets paid to betray Jesus. Peter denies Jesus three times in the face of a servant girl saying that he's one of the Galileans, a servant girl, servant girl whose testimony didn't even count, couldn't be used in a legal proceeding in those days. And Peter denies three times. But there's a difference because Peter has been washed. And Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Peter, that after Satan has sifted you like wheat, you will be restored. And Jesus pursues him and restores him after the resurrection. What I'm saying is, what can happen sometimes is you can have a group of people, some of which are truly converted and some of which are not. And perseverance is the test of reality. Now, here's here's the thing I want to say. Because I, I know I think about people I know, I think about people that used to be in u f that are dear friends of mine that aren't walking with the Lord now, and what I, what I, where I, I find hope is that the story's not done, right? The story's not over, but these matters are serious. These matters are serious. that's what's going on here now what what he says here, you look at verse seven and eight, he uses basically, he re, kind of recapitulates the parable of the sower. You remember the parable of the sower? The sower scatters seed, and depending on what kind of ground the seed lands on, it produces a good crop, or sometimes it produces a crop that looks good, but doesn't last, okay? So so the Hebrews is echoing that, and and one of the things that helps us understand is all of the people he's talking about have had the word so, they've all been part of the community, but some of them need this warning to not turn back. He says that he's convinced in the case of these people that they are genuine Christians, but they're wavering. And here's the thing, part of God's tenacious love is to offer serious warnings, serious warnings. You can't just go in and out of deciding you want to follow Jesus. Now this is not about, you know, I had a bad you know, weekend and I did some stuff I really wish I hadn't done. This is about a sustained rejection. And the hard thing is, how do you know when you've got to that point? I think the book of Hebrews warns people because it's like sometimes it's hard to know. You would have thought after Peter denied Jesus three times that he'd reached that point, wouldn't you? You surely would have thought that about David after he sinned with Bathsheba, which was really sexual abuse, right? I know you guys talked about this Monday night. Girls got into quite a debate about this, I heard. Right? You would have thought like he has no, he doesn't bear any marks of being a man after God's own heart. But the story wasn't done. So you have to be careful to not make snap judgments about snapshots. But you also need to know that this stuff is serious. Now, why does the writer say this? He says this because they're not reached that point yet. They've not reached that point. He says he's confident of better things in their case. There has been fruit, and he says there's even now fruit that shows that something is different about you. He wants to encourage them, though, is what's interesting. Look here at verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, let me explain this. A lot of people, there are whole denominations, like the Roman Catholic Church, that teach that assurance of salvation is heresy. The Catholic Church declared that at the Council of Trent in the 1500s. They've not backed off on that as an official teaching. I disagree with that. But I can understand the logic. John Wesley also embraced this view that I disagree with, which is this. If you tell people that when Jesus comes and changes them, that they will never never lose their salvation, that's just going to make them lazy and not want to really live like Christians. That the only way to keep people really living for God is to make them worried about not getting to heaven one day. That And, the, and you can understand that, I think, right? Uh, if you don't understand it now, you'll understand it when you have children, and you're trying to figure out how the heck to motivate them. Like, sometimes fear of punishment is a pretty good motivation. But the Bible says for Christians it's not the right motivation. And here, he says that's not true. That's like a worldly logic, but it's not the logic of grace. The logic of grace is full assurance of hope is actually what keeps you from being sluggish. Now, why might that be the case? Well, have you ever been in a relationship where you just couldn't please the other person, no matter how hard you tried You ever been in a relationship maybe with a parent, maybe with a boss, maybe with a professor? Like no matter how hard I try, no matter what I do, they're just never satisfied. Maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Man, that kind of relationship just is a drudgery. You don't want to talk to those people. You don't want to be around those people. Right? So what this kind of worldly logic says is that's what a relationship with God is like. But because he's so scary, you know, he'll keep us from, you know, running off and doing whatever we want. But what the Bible says over and over again is, no, the only thing that changes the heart is to see Jesus, the one who went before us and even now is exercising a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. I want you, the writer of Hebrews says, to have this full assurance of hope because that's what keeps you from being sluggish. And this is something God has been after the whole way through the Bible. Look at Abraham. Look at Abraham. God swore an oath to Abraham. And he didn't have to swear an oath to Abraham. You know, even more amazing about this whole story is when God swears this oath. If you look it up, it's Genesis chapter 22. This is after Abraham has passed the test. So he's not trying to motivate Abraham at this point. And the writer of Hebrews picks up on that and says, You know what? God swore an oath when making this promise to Abraham, not for Abraham. Abraham actually didn't need it, he'd already passed the test. He did that so that all of us, the heirs of salvation, would be abundantly clear of the unchangeable nature of his purpose in salvation. Isn't that amazing? So like what this passage is saying is God goes out of his way to do something he doesn't need to do so that you would be abundantly clear about the unchangeable nature of his purpose in salvation. Does that sound like God is trying to scare us? No, but he's saying this is serious. But what I did to secure you in my love is deadly serious too. I sent Jesus to live and die in your place You're not in a relationship with me because I scared you into it. If you're in a relationship with me, it's because I changed your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh, sent my spirit to move you to obey my commands. If there's fruit in your life, it's because I truly have changed you. So keep persevering. Don't turn back from that. And if you're part of this covenant community, hearing the word of God, the rain that falls on the land, drink it in and pray that it would continue to soften your heart and produce life. Don't go somewhere else. Be here. Stay here. There's no other safe place to be. Our hope is based on the fact that God wants us to have assurance. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Now, now later, actually... In Hebrews chapter 9, I'll give you a little sneak peek of one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says, How much more than the blood of goats and and sheep, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? That so that there is really important. Because the writer of Hebrews chapter 9 says the key to serving God is to know that your conscience is cleansed from acts that lead to death. And if you don't know that, you can't actually serve God. You may think that you're serving God, but you're really just trying to get him on your side. The only thing that enables you to live the Christian life is to be sure that you don't have to perform for God. I've used this story before. My wife sometimes gets on me for using old stories, but it's such a good story. I'm going to use it because some of you guys are new and you may have not heard this one. I had a friend, Scott Rowley, pastored at a church that I used to be on staff at down, down in Franklin. And one time he had a guy come see him in his office who said, you know, Scott, I'm really interested in, in following Jesus, but I just don't like this idea that I have to tell people about Jesus. I just don't like that. Like, I just don't like to talk to people about stuff like that. I just think it's you know, intrusive or whatever. I don't want to do that. And Scott said, well, you know, you don't have to tell anybody about Jesus for Jesus to love you. Like, that's not the audition. That's not like, you know, the criteria to become a Christian. And the guy went away and thought about it. A week or two later, a mutual friend of theirs says, says to my friend, Scott, Scott, what did you tell so-and-so? And Scott's like, what do you mean? He was like, well, ever since he met with you, he's been telling everybody about Jesus, so Scott called the guy back into his office and uh, said, what, what happened? Like, when, we, when you left, you were like, I, I don't really want to become a Christian because I don't want to have to tell people about Jesus. And he says, well, Scott, when you told me that I didn't have to tell people about Jesus for Jesus to love me, I just had to tell everybody. <laughs> like, what this, what Hebrews 6 should do for you is turn upside down what you think about God. And it starts out like, oh, I knew it. You know, here is God trying to frighten us again. No, you know Romans 2.4? It's another paradigm-shifting verse. The kindness and mercy of God is designed to lead to repentance. That's what you have here. God swearing an oath to Abraham out of his abundant kindness so that the heirs of salvation... Would be abundantly clear about his unchangeable purpose. That's good. That's good stuff. Um, you know, um, th- this, like I said, this is on Christ, the solid rock. Comes out of this, wouldn't it? Amazing. Like when this chapter starts, you'd be like, "Oh my gosh let's just a, Let's just cut Hebrews chapter six out of the Bible. How could you cut Hebrews six out of the Bible? God swears an oath so that we would be sure. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't take care and even examine yourself. Later in the passage here, it talks about we who have fled for refuge. This is the end of verse 18. We who fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, That's what this whole thing is about. If you have fled to take hope of the refuge in Christ, you have strong encouragement to keep hanging on. Do you know why? Because of how beautiful and how wonderful God is. Like the thing that makes you not want to persevere with God is the suspicion that he's actually not very good at all. And that's why he swears an oath to do battle with your suspicion and your unbelief. Because honestly, it's not so much the persecution that makes people turn back, it's the suspicion that God is not good. You, all you got to do is read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's unbelievable, right? As Tertullian, the church father, said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Look at the church in China, Right? persecution has led the church to grow over and over and over again, everywhere in every century. But the suspicion that God is not good, that he's holding out on us, well, that's what caused the sin in the garden. And that's what caused Judas to want to betray Jesus, because Jesus wasn't on his side and didn't want to kick the Romans out like Judas thought needed to happen. When God doesn't go along with your plans— and you begin to wonder whether he's good, that's when you're tempted to turn back from him. And that's when you need to look not only at the promise God has made, but the promise God has kept in Jesus. And that brings us to the very end of this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Do you know what that's talking about? That's talking about the temple and what is the holy of holies Jesus went into the true Holy of Holies, Hebrews is going to explain later, that the temple was actually a picture of the true heavenly temple, the true heavenly Holy of Holies, where Jesus went, the only one who ever stood before God, covered in sin, and had the audacity to stand before him in the Holy of Holies, and he was obliterated. And because of that, we have this sure and steady anchor because everything that would make god want to obliterate you if you have put your trust in him if you have fled to him for refuge then all of that was placed on jesus and there's nothing left no punishment left jesus has gone it says as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you're like, what? Well, we're going to get into Melchizedek. (laughs) Yeah, because the book of Hebrews talks about this guy Melchizedek and what his priesthood means and why it's superior even to the Old Testament sacrificial system, just as Jesus sacrifices. The reason Jesus sacrifices superior is because it only needed to happen once. The Old Testament sacrifices happened over and over again because they were pointing to the fact that God was going to make provision, but the blood of bulls and goats wasn't it. It was pointing to God who would make the provision, and Jesus is the provision. This is why the Apostle Paul says, as many promises as God has made, they are all yea and amen in Christ. That's the anchor for the soul. That's what keeps us from becoming sluggish to keep looking at Jesus, the forerunner who's went before us. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing On Christ the Solid Rock. Lord, we do thank you that you would swear an oath, not because you're unreliable, but because you care that we would have just this incredible confidence in who you are and what you've done that you would go out of your way doing things you don't need to do. But, of course, isn't the gospel all about that? Because you didn't need to send Jesus. You had every right to wipe us out. But you didn't. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.